I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Today is a very special episode. I'm not talking about a specific movie. I'm talking about many. Many that you've never seen. I'm joined by my guest, Brianna Henson, to talk about a handful of our favorite movies that you and I haven't and never will see. We've talked about this before that I think humans have an innate fear of the unknown, but I also think that we also have an interest in the unknown. Um, that is, kind of, that, I mean, it's kind of conflicting inside, but this idea that these films that were either lost or never made or never released, they, the controversy in and of itself of a, of a project that's coming out intrigues people. Like, I mean, something like, like the interview being banned in the US makes people want to go see it more. But I think that the fact of this just makes people like something that's never made. Some of these projects are like movies that we want to see more than other ones that are coming out. Would you agree with that? Like- I would definitely agree. Um, like you said, there's so much of a curiosity with the unknown where I feel like sometimes you're just like, figure out whatever you can about a project that hasn't been filmed or hasn't been released that you build it up in your mind so much. Like, I bet this would be the best experience yeah, to see it. And it's in a lot of times you're just reading about it. Cause it's like, you never thought about that as like a movie or other times just like, Oh, I want that to be a movie so bad. Cause that sounds awesome. Like, or just like, it would just like, there's some of them, like, I mean, there's so many like unmade superhero movies, like, you know, the, you know, there was the, the one that Tim Burton was going to make about Superman. That was like the, that was going to talk about the death of Superman and that had Nicolas Cage and it was directed by Tim Burton and was written by Kevin Smith. And it was like, that was just a whole big disaster. But that's like one where it's like, that would be like, I want to see that. I mean, obviously just for Nicolas Cage as Superman, like alone, yeah. that'd be like, all right, like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, um, let, let's see where that goes. But then other times it's like, some of these are just like, they're insane. And I can mm-hmm. like, part of me can get behind the studio heads are like, yeah, we're not making that. <laughs> but like, it, as a viewer, it makes it all the more intriguing, you know? Yeah. And it's so fun to go down the path of what if. Absolutely. Like, and well, if this guy writes it, then it, it'll be funnier. Or if so-and-so directs it, it'll be scarier than what I've already pictured in my mind yeah. or what I've already read. And there's, like, some where it's, like, you only hear... I think every director has those ones where it's, like, I, I can't do this, I can't finish it, or I, it won't get made, or it just won't work. Like, there was, like, I mean, Christopher Nolan, when he finished... Um, I think he finished Batman Begins, and he wrote a, a biopic on uh, uh, Howard Hughes. And he said it was like one of the best things that he had written. But then Martin Scorsese came out with The Aviator, and he's like, "Okay, I'll, uh, I won't, I won't do this. I just, I'll just shelve it because I mean, this mm-hmm. movie's coming out." And he said that they were really similar. Um, so like, you know, that's one. Or like, David Cronenberg was gonna do like a, a Frankenstein movie. Oh, that would have been awesome. But he only like agreed. It was like only rumors because it's like he only agreed to it over the phone. Oh. And then all of a sudden, newspaper ads and magazine ads just like bam start popping up oh, everywhere and he's like oh okay this isn't uh and i think he just wasn't like completely attached to it as he as it seemed like he was you know oh man i can only imagine then now with social media and the twitterverse like mm-hmm. how quickly word can spread yeah about, well this movie's gonna get made and then oops no it's not 
Sorry. Yeah, a lot of the, in a lot of these movies that we'll talk about are like much much older that faded into obscurity or that just like, you know, then they became infamous later on. And what's worse is that because of that, it's very clear that they just will never get made and that then they're just completely lost at that point. It seems like it. When the demand is there though, with like Mm -hmm. that little cult of movie lovers or again, just people curious about the unknown Mm -hmm. or how could a movie either fail on such a large scale to the point where it's not released or be, have so many issues to the point where it doesn't get finished like picturing that behind the scenes production and then trying to think of how that relates to the end product and what that must end up looking like i feel like you can only be like i need to see this yeah and i think i think that's an interesting thought about the rise of social media and like how (sighs) prominent it is in our society like something like to take the the movie the man who killed don quixote like that was one that was considered like just a few years ago this will never ever see the light of day and it just got made and it's been like around the circuit in europe and well and we were all i was really excited for it to come to the u.s because it was like i mean i didn't know anything about the movie but like i like terry gilliam and just the idea that it was that something that was stuck in development hell for so long and was considered just not it was not going to be made Mm -hmm. to actually get made and to almost get released in and of itself excited me oh That, that you could almost be like you're almost being a part of history in a way because of it yeah i had a similar experience with uh Charles Burns' Black Hole, the graphic novel. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've heard of it. But I've heard of it, yeah. For a while, there was talks of David Fincher doing an adaptation, mm-hmm. which would just look killer. Because, again, you're able to take what you've seen from that director and then associate it with like the source material if you read it. And you're like, oh, well, I can picture perfect how this scene would look and this panel and so-and-so. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then just when it's in development hell, you're uh-huh. like, oh, well, that sucks. Yeah. But recently, I believe there are talks that it is going to be made, just not by Fincher. Interesting. So. And there's always, I feel like I feel like we see it with superhero movies a lot, too. It's like something that just didn't pan out. Like, I mean, the Gambit movie has been going through the circuit forever. Inhumans was canceled and turned into a TV show, which just got canceled. <laughs> um, and, I mean, there I feel like they're just everywhere in history and you just have to find them. And I think that the the ones that we found, um, I've, I've, I mean, I've been interested in this idea for a few years now because I never really thought about like what, like what are the failed projects? Cause like a lot of, a lot of times you think about it, it's like, Oh, it's the failed project. It's not as good or just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have worked or like whatever. But like, you know, some of these may have been like, I, I would have liked to seen like to have seen like other than other movies or like they're just like, they're, they're so compelling that I can't imagine, or like I can't imagine them actually being real, but I want them to be. You know, <laughs> it's like a dream. You know, it's fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so why don't we go um, one by one and we'll talk about some of the ones that we picked out that we liked the most and explain like what they were and then um, what like um, like who was attached to it famously and like what the story's about and why it was eventually like shelved forever. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to kick I'll, I'll kick it off with one of my personal favorites and that is Dune. The uh, Frank Herbert novel was going to be adapted um, into a film 10 years before David Lynch did in 1984, I believe. In the 70s, um, Alejandro Jodorowsky was going to direct um, an adaptation that was 
Um, he did The Holy Mountain, um, very psychedelic, crazy, crazy director. Um, he, I, I, he, when he first read the novel, I think he just became obsessed with it. And I think he, when he wrote the script, he took so many liberties that it was going to be, it was a completely his own vision. And it would have just been chaos. Like, <laughs> there would have been, um, like, it was supposed to be, like, super trippy and just, like, really, really, um, like, obviously out there. But, like, Salvador Dali was attached to it. Orson Welles was going to be it. Like, he got Orson Welles to be in it when he went to see him at his favorite restaurant. He's like, listen, if you do this movie for me, I'll get the chef from this restaurant to cook for you every day. <laughs> and Orson Welles is like, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and uh, Mick Jagger was going to be in it. And oh then he God. had um, Pink Floyd uh, to do the music. That's a dream team. Yeah, right? right? It's, it's incredible. So, like, already right there, like, that sounds, like, just crazy. Like, mm. that would be... That, that, that is like yeah it's a dream team that's a great group of people coming together to make something that would have been so out there but since like dune was like uh like is now like is like considered a bible of science fiction <laughs> it would have like i think i i think i i think it said somewhere he was going to take a lot of liberties with it though so he it would have like i think that would have like made it a lot different yeah and the fact that it's based on a book mm-hmm if you have the pre-existing audience of people that have read the book that mm-hmm. are going and expecting an adaptation of the book and they're just like blindsided by something yeah. super psychedelic and totally different, you have the risk, I think, mm-hmm. of really alienating a lot of people, if not a majority of the people that are going to go see the movie in the first place. The proof of concept is there, though, so of, of oh, the yeah. book. Um, but I love that Like, I, they're, they're, this became the subject of a documentary recently called... Um, Jodorowsky's Dune and it's um he has this quote in there that I thought was really interesting because he when he talks about it he's super like he's so into it and he's like really happy about it and uh he's like I wanted to um create a prophet to change the young minds of all the world and I just think that that's and knowing his like his movies and like who he is as a director I just think that he would have been like a a great choice for this Mm -hmm. what happened was it was just like it's really interesting if you look at like the the storyboard and plans and designs for this movie it's insane like it's disturbing and it's just like almost like it's just not plausible it's just like especially for the 70s at some point as in like unfilmable like almost in a way like it's just seemed like some of the designs are just like maybe it's like because of scale Mm -hmm. or just because of like a like I don't know, just, I think you should definitely look up some of them, because some of them are, like, they're beautiful to look at, but, like, it didn't seem like there was any way that it would have, like, you know, fully worked out, you know, um, but he was supposed to, it was definitely, like, the studio was worried that they were going to put too much money into something that wouldn't necessarily work with the masses, because he wanted, so the the studio's like, you have to cut it down to two hours, he planned, because of his script being so big, he planned for it to be a 15-hour-long film. <laughs> I know, right? His script, like, he has the script still, and I've, like, it's the size of a phone book. Oh, my goodness. And, like, because he, it was all in the details for him. You know, he kept the details while he took liberties with the story. The details were apparently, like, all there. And the script is, like, you know, like, the... It's at least like, like you know five, five minutes. Yeah. yeah, it's huge. You know, it's like it's like a Robert Caro biography. Um, <laughs> and so he like was just like so. It was very much like it was his way or the highway. But like in the seventies, it was like this was unheard of. You know, and I mean, obviously now like no one's gonna make a fifteen-hour movie. But like <laughs> at least like there probably could have been at least some compromise. Be like, why don't we make it a mini series? Like that would be something that I would love to see. See, this yeah. is a mini series. But like. It, I, I don't think it, it would have just been different. 
I mean, well, definitely. I, I feel like something like that could be plausible today, though. Definitely, like you said, a miniseries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with the whole state of streaming and Netflix series, weekly releases online, like, yeah, it'd be accessible. And so, uh, ultimately, they just they cut funding after the after pre-production because it just wouldn't work. And then a little while later, and yeah, nineteen eighty-four, the um, the David Lynch version was released and. Uh, it was a commercial disaster, and David Lynch has even said like I hated working on it. it. Was it was he his quote I believe it was like just a nightmare, um, and so I mean the the author of the book Frank Frank Herbert actually likes that actually likes the movie, but um, I guess we won't get to see the the crazy insane version of Dune that we would have all that we were kind of hoping for I guess in a way yeah which is kind of sad but I I definitely. Uh, I want to check out that documentary that's all about it's called uh Jodorowsky's Dune it came out and I definitely want to check that out because this movie just sounds oof sounds crazy and there's definitely no way it's going to happen now because I mean obviously Orson Welles and Silver Dolly they're dead so unfortunately <laughs> yeah so all right what's one with you? Well, what do you have Okay, uh, I'm gonna start by asking you: Do you believe in curses? Um, Are you a supernatural believer. The supernatural is kind of a gray area with me, <laughs> mainly because it's like I believe in ghosts, but I well, mainly because I think they're cool. I have no explanation for them that makes them <laughs> makes them plausible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's like I can't. I have no explanation for ghosts, but I think they're cool. You know, that's basically what it is. Yeah, I think you might enjoy this then. Um, I mean, a curse doesn't have to involve a ghost, but I definitely think, based on the track record of what I'm about to talk about, some sort of angry spirit must have been involved. Mm-hmm. So, I, being a fan of the supernatural, heard about this unfilmed movie because of the whole talk of a curse on it. And this movie is called Atuk. Atuk? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's Inuit for Grandfather. It's an unfilmed American screenplay, and uh, this was also going to be an adaptation from a book, uh, a 1963 novel, and it was planned in the early 70s by Norman Jewison, not sure if I'm saying that last name right, Mm -hmm. who he directed in The Heat of the Night. Oh, yeah, okay. And not sure if you're familiar with musicals, but Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. He purchased the rights to the uh the film and stuck in development hell because there was quite a few problems with getting the movie off the ground due to what i'm about to talk about so he purchased the rights planned to shoot in canada because the film itself is about a canadian inuit hunter trying to adapt to life in the city like a fish out of water type thing uh-huh it was written with john belushi in mind okay and that's we're gonna go back to that because it follows the theory of a book curse. Okay. So written with John Belushi in mind, he first read about the lead role in early 1982. Okay. And he was on board. Five months later, he's found dead in his hotel room. Uh huh. He overdosed, unfortunately. So, big stop there. Mm-hmm. Lead actor that he had planned died. Next pr- production began in 1988. And Sam Kinison, who I'm not totally familiar with, uh, 
bit of a legal battle. He's a, he's a comedian. comedian. He's a very famous comedian. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> bit of a yeah. I mean, it was going to be like a comedy, so it makes sense. But there's a bit of a battle with he wanted to rewrite the script, and the studio tried to accommodate, but Sam Kinison was super difficult to work with, uh-huh. and basically he held his performance like over their head, <laughs> like a whole. If you don't comply with me, I'm going to give a bad performance on purpose. Yeah. Uh huh. Because. That would make a movie very bad. Yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> there's rumors that he didn't even read the script, though, before he was like, well, I'm making this change, that change, and this. Interesting. But he was on the set for eight days, so footage must have been shot uh-huh. at least a little bit. But ultimately, he left the project because he was just such a pain to work with. Uh-huh. So I think kicked off would be a better word. And after that, only a few years later... He was killed by a drunk driver, which mm-hmm. is very unfortunate, but it's really spooky because, yeah. again, I don't know how you feel about the supernatural, but... It is, I mean, I think that that is a very odd coincidence, but definitely very, very odd, yeah. Because then, I'd say after the second death and the second failed attempt to just leave it, uh-huh. but 1994, two years after the death of Kinnison, John Candy is offered the role Uh and he was on board he expressed interest (laughs) and then sure enough and eerily very similar to john belushi died of a heart attack like Uh right after reading the script yeah (laughs) and it was before making it a completely final decision so it could be argued like oh he wasn't part of the project the movie didn't kill him the curse didn't kill him (laughs) and he was in poor health anyway but well, this is unconfirmed, apparently a friend of his, who was a scriptwriter, had just read some of it, mm-hmm. if not was the one to pass it on to him, like, hey, I think here's a project you'd be interested. And he very unexpectedly died of a cerebral hemorrhage just a few months after John Candy died. The friend did? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he didn't even, like, have any involvement directly with the movie. It's just uh-huh. rumored that he read the script. Oof. So, after that, again, another bump in the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the role was offered to Chris Farley, uh-huh. who he was he was very vocal about how excited he was about the script and to shoot the movie. And it's not confirmed if he had, like, just accepted the role or was on the verge of doing so, but right before he died in 1997. And he was found dead in his hotel, like an overdose <laughs> situation. And uh, it's this is next connection, unverified, but it's rumored that Chris Farley shared the script or talks of the film with... I'm blanking on his first name. Hartman. Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman, yeah. Because yeah. Phil Hartman was they up were on S- They were on SNL together, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he was aware of the film and the script, but he didn't want the lead. He wanted a supporting role. <clears throat> And then after a few months after Farley's death, Hartman was murdered. Mm-hmm. So the movie never got off the ground <laughs> after a lot of dark hiccups like that. But I mean, it's interesting that they all chose. They were all bigger, like people in poor health. Like I mean, like yeah, I... that's kind of a that's an interesting trend. <clears throat> like a, all of the, all of these like I mean John Belushi and. And Sam, I mean Sam Kinison died of a of a drunk driver. Right? He was killed by a drunk driver. Right. Yeah. Um. But I mean John Candy and John Belushi and Chris Farley were all in horrible health. Yeah. Um. 
um so that might also have like really bad timing to do with it but the that is really interesting that they were all they were all bigger they were all big stars mm-hmm. in comedy and that they were um all um related like to the script that is that is really interesting I actually did hear I heard someone actually now that you say all that someone actually did tell me that story I thought it was related to a different movie though but that is that is pretty creepy so I mean yeah maybe that one should just stay where it is (laughs) there's rumors of a a book curse a curse on anyone who steals a document and so people are like oh well if it was written for John Belushi and he didn't get to do it and now everybody else quote unquote stole the role like they're gonna Uh die too yeah (laughs) I think it's spooky and it is it is really really odd to think about yeah definitely um I don't I wonder, like, what the, like, if I I want like I think it's really weird that it's that specific movie, like I mean because yeah. like it doesn't seem like the movie has anything to do with like super I mean I, maybe it's just like far like maybe this doesn't really have anything to do with it but it's like the movie doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the supernatural so maybe because no, it like, it's like it is a little random but at the same time it's like you don't expect it you know? I feel like that makes it more sinister <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly I mean a fish out of water comedy with like some like. Because I definitely think there's a comedy that goes with like bigger people, like they write roles for big guys. Uh-huh, like, that's, yeah. that's what a lot of Chris Farley's movies were, and mm-hmm. something just so sinister about a movie like yeah, that, killing it, people. It is weird. It is yeah, very very odd to think about. Um, so my uh, my next one is a is a big one. Uh, it was uh, I'm a huge stanley kubrick fan as many many others are yes. he's considered by most to be the the greatest filmmaker ever and i would i would agree with that statement um he had i i, I saw something recently that said that he was he greatly admired the work of woody allen and the fact that woody allen was able to p- produce a movie each year he had a movie a year and he was able to yeah. do that but woody allen was able to do it on a smaller budget and smaller scale whereas stanley kubrick's movies were larger than life and way out there that because of the big ideas and the time and they, he just couldn't do it he only had like i think total he only has a dozen movies or like 12 movies or something like that that he's been able to make there were so many things that were interesting to him mm-hmm. that he wanted to make it into a film but he just couldn't um i mean there's some that are like um his he had an idea for to do a movie about world war ii and the holocaust and it was called the aryan papers and it was all about focusing on i think it was supposed to be like some like a um like kind of kind of like like a harsher like very harsh like schindler's list um but kind of focusing on both sides i think of the war and of the holocaust but more so i would like the emotional side of the of the holocaust being like kind of the the forefront of the movie um but the one that interests me the most of those um of those unmade is the and the one that more people know about i guess is the one he is um napoleon he wanted to do a whole movie about napoleon bonaparte and what um and you can kind of off put this like oh it's a big director making a you know fancy bio uh, biopic you know okay whatever what's so special about it i think what's more special about this movie is the is the production and detail that went into it and stanley kubrick you know he was a self-proclaimed um perfectionist take after take after take after take until he got it right you know and i admire that um but he was a huge admirer of napoleon like was like almost obsessed by almost i mean he was (laughs) he uh did like extensive background knowledge bought so many books uh like 
from like uh, written in many different languages to get every single detail and he had researchers go out and bring back as much information as he could and at, at one point he had like a filing cabinet filled with cards and you could go over and pick a card out and it could be a, a random day in napoleon's life and Kubrick can tell you what he did on it, what he did, why he did it, how he did it. Like, That's insane. It's crazy. Like his entire life, Kubrick mapped out. He knew the character inside and out. So he wanted to do a movie about it. And he the the, the script of this movie is actually floating around on the internet. Mm-hmm. And you could actually go read it. Um, he wanted to do something um, obviously focusing on the character element and the emotional side of it. There was apparently a whole lot of sex in the movie. <laughs> and but the there were brutal battle scenes um much like you know the kind of the brutalness of like what you see in a clockwork orange or um full metal jacket mm-hmm. um but he they they said that like all of these they were going to be like ballets like these battles were going to be like so meticulous and like drawn and this was right off of his success of 2001 a space odyssey in mm-hmm. 1968 so he it was just at the height of like he basically he could do whatever he wanted to yeah. you know so he this took forever to get into you know and this was this was another longer script it was going to be real it was going to be a long movie at least 3 hours you know but i mean that's more plausible than a 15 hour you know the Jodorowsky but um it was gonna it was a huge epic and you know people were like okay I, I trust you know Kubrick you know if he if there's anyone who could do like this big of a movie it was him and then um around that same time I believe in uh, two years later 1970 this movie um called Waterloo came out which is about the battle of Waterloo about Napoleon um which many consider to be not a not a bad movie but the problem with it is um it was a bomb it was just a box office like disaster it didn't make really any good money so the studio saw this and this was right into um pre-production of kubrick's napoleon and so studio was very very apprehensive about like i don't know i don't know if like this would work you know because like this and I think they would have been different, like, I mean, clearly, because, I mean, Rod Steger, who made Waterloo, is definitely no Stanley Kubrick, but, like, <laughs> um, they would have been, uh, it definitely, like, raises some red flags, you know, and I, I can't really fault the studio for saying, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know about yeah, this, you know? but you'd hope they'd have, like you said, more trust yeah, in Kubrick. Yeah, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> but it's kind of the, it's, you know, it's, they play that game of, like, you know, it's... It's the studio, you know, they want to make money. So, and the other red flag they had is that the, with these battle scenes, Kubrick wanted to have, like, he didn't want to have, like, you know, effects that made, he wanted, like, big armies, like 20,000 people armies that are real people. You know, he didn't want just, like, a few in the front and then, like, fill in the back. He wanted yeah. all to be real people, real armies, you know? That's insane. Like, no one, like, that is, like, no one ever thought about doing that ever. Like, he would have, he had costumes ready. Like, he had a pretty solid pre-production. Like, he mm-hmm. got, like, he got actors, he got the script, he got, like, lo- he was location scouting, and he, like, got even, like, wardrobe. Like, they would have, like, 100 people in the front or, like, it was probably even more, like, wearing real uniforms, like, real, like, look-like uniforms from that time. And then they would have paper uniforms in the back just made a paper and they look exactly the same so they had planned to use so many people but at the same time it's like how can you find those many extras Mm -hmm. and can you even like make it work as a director like rally them all up and that is like the highest level of ambition and it's almost like too much ambition because it was kind of his downfall with this film 
Now, you said he was obsessed with Napoleon. Was this before he ever planned to make a movie about him? Like, was it just I think he always. I think he always admired him in oh, some damn. way. Then that's like the perfect guy to make it. Yeah, exactly. That's so unfortunate that some movie that... Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't see Waterloo, so I don't know if it was shitty or not, but if it doesn't do well at the box office to instantly assume yeah. right, the Napoleon market just, it was, is oversaturated. It was, a bad ca- it was a bad case of bad timing, you know? And yeah. uh, uh, I think what was... What sucks, yeah, the most is that like he claimed it would have been like the greatest movie ever, and he also uh, th- there's a lot of parallels between Kubrick and Napoleon. People have drawn like they're both <laughs> they were very obsessed, they were very good at what they were doing, mm-hmm. but they were very, um, you know, meticulous. And uh, there's so much like in er- early geniuses, they were both like extremely smart from like early age on, and mm-hmm. I think that he th- of that. You know, it makes him the perfect guy to do it. Now, some of this movie, like some of like the essence of it has been sprinkled in throughout its throughout Stanley Kubrick's like filmography. Like there was the movie Barry Lyndon that came out in 73, which is very, you know, Victorian and um, which would have been the same setting as Napoleon that he that he wanted. Um, And so they use kind of the same effects that they were going to use for that and costumes and things like that. But um, it never got made. The only other chance that we would have to possibly like see something like it other than just looking through his filmography would be like I know Steven Spielberg who made AI which was going to be another Kubrick movie but then he gave it away because of illness. Uh, Spielberg was going to make a uh, an HBO miniseries about like uh, based off of the script that um, Stanley Kubrick wrote mm-hmm. with some minor altercations because of you know uh, it was just the, the a draft just the one yeah. draft of it. Um, so. We may get to see it, and who knows? But I would. Uh, it's not definitely not going to be the same as yeah. if Stanley Kubrick made it. Oh, that's so tragic. Mm-hmm. Just true. Oh, just the fact that it's based on timing alone. Yeah. I, I really wonder if Waterloo didn't come out, if just everybody would have been on board and totally confident. Absolutely. Oh, what could have been? <laughs> <laughs> you could spend like hours going down that hole. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Oh, that's so sad. What's your next one? All right. This is one that's close to my heart. Now, I mentioned to you that I'm a closeted anime fan. <laughs> You're not closeted anymore when you say it on here. I keep it very close to my chest. <laughs> but I have been a huge fan of the anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams was also a fan, so oh. <laughs> I take some solace in that. Now, are you familiar with that series? I know of it. I don't know much about it, though. It'd be very hard to summarize quickly, but think giant robots fighting alien type creatures okay but it's not just some like super actiony type thing there's character study involved with the human characters that pilot the robots and drama and existentialism okay and it's a very good series like pinnacle okay so animation obviously allows for like anything like you can have giant robots knocking down trees and it would look beautiful because you can animate it like illustrated you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but watching those fights and just thinking like 
live action it would look so cool that's the thing i think with a lot of these movies that don't get made or that don't get released like just thinking it would look so cool though yeah. without mm-hmm. even considering all the work and like yeah. legal work and hours of manpower that goes into creating film but you're just like the end product would look so cool yeah so there was an evangelion live action film that never came to be and it would have been a live action adaptation straight up of neon genesis evangelion so the series ended in the 90s i believe it was on in the 80s right from october 1995 to march 1996 so come 2003 there are talks of a live action film being made because i personally think that it's a timeless series mm-hmm. like i think maybe the animation looks a little aged but just the themes the plot giant robots never got a style so 2003 first talks of a film being made there is a workshop what a workshop best known as the new zealand-based special effects company that worked on lord of the rings oh interesting. are you familiar see i never saw lord of the rings movies oh okay you so should i should <laughs> yeah <laughs> are the special effects nice yeah they are oh mm-hmm. that makes me even more sad this mm-hmm. film never got made but what a i might be saying that wrong Weta, what a workshop they had made a joint announcement with ganix 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 i'm not sure on the pronunciation of that but they were the creators of evangelion just ganix so there's talks with them and what a workshop and then the north american distributor of evangelion adv they announced at 2003 can festival or not so much announced but there's mutterings of a live action film so all three parties were collaborating but no hard details were released it was just those three but you think like north american distributor of what i assume to be very legitimate special effects crew crew yeah and then the actual creators of the original series like perfect let's go but jump ahead two years adv sets about spreading the word and gaining interest i.e money for ava movies because there's talks of a series so bit of a budget (laughs) 100 to 120 million dollars would be needed and that's that, that money in two, 2005. Oh, okay. Yeah, that so is today, a little, little, little daunting for, yeah. for then. I mean, it's it's a lot now, but even then, more so, yeah. Yeah, I, like with inflation, I don't even know what that would be today. But so that's the money they would need. And somehow about half that money had been conjured, which I think alone is like a feat. Uh-huh. 2006, reps from ADV Films held a panel at an anime convention in Pittsburgh. I've never been to an anime convention. I would uh-huh. like to make that clear. So I can only <laughs> I was there. Assume, I can only assume what the atmosphere was like when they get on this panel and start answering questions about the rumors of a live action NGE movie. Uh-huh. So everyone was stoked, including Ganix, the creators of the original series, and they said that there was three A-list directors that had been considered or that had approached them about the project. They didn't name any names, but A-list. I'm sure you can like draw conclusions yeah. in your own mind. Again, the what if. Yeah, You're exactly. Like, oh, well, if my favorite A-list director did this, back it in would 2000, look like that. Back yeah. in 2004. You could just think of anybody. Like, uh-huh. oh, David Fincher. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And 
what else robin williams i mentioned him he publicly lent his support to a live action film like he was trying to help drum up interest and investors like picture robin williams approaching you about like that's so hey i have this anime that's so random but that's so cool (laughs) have you watched neon genesis evangelion because i have Mm -hmm. but still no director and Mm -hmm. it hasn't been formally green green lit later on that year 2006 concept art is released people are stoked because it's very true to the original uh a half devastated future setting angels i.e aliens that are going to be fought by giant robots the suits that the giant robot pilots wear it all looked so true to the original Uh series which got people so excited the only thing was this is a bit topical too it was a little whitewashed Oh, okay. Because the original series, being anime, had some very Japanese names, mm-hmm. but they were changed to things like Rose. Uh, they, oh, like, okay. <laughs> they were switched. They were whitewashed, which fans did not like, but the studio realized, shit, that won't work, and they went back to the original names. So it's looking good. Hopeful. 2008 comes around. There is another panel at an anime convention on the West Coast. And this time it did not go as well. A room full of anime fans that have been hearing about the movie for five years. There's uh-huh. going to be some tension. And there's going to be some questions they want answered. So ADV was having setbacks with their business against the North American distributor. Um, and they were losing money. So they were still, though, you'd think your studio, you're starting to lose money. But you've been hinting at this huge project. You'd think you'd kind of want to start being a little more lukewarm about getting people excited. Uh-huh. But they straight up name drop Steven Spielberg. Oh God! Has has like uh, with uh, the directing? Yeah, has, oh, my God. has possible partner, but still no hard details other than that. But. I mean, I'd say that's a pretty hard detail to just drop. Yeah, I and mean, especially when you don't have like all your, all your like eggs in one basket. You just have yeah. like just the inklings. You, it's not like fully going. I yet, feel you like know? that's it's... something you say to someone when you're like procrastinating. You're like, oh well, I got this done. Like, yeah. Oh well, we got this massive we, we director. Have, we have this. It's going good. It's like, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean that like that's like. I feel like that's something you announce when, like, it is, like, fully when going it's forward. Yeah. By September 2009, ADV was straight up going out of business. Oof. Like, no return. <laughs> so they have to sell off all their assets, restructured itself, and morphed into two separate studios. And they licensed new titles to try and get some new money in. And by new titles, I mean other anime. So they're in the middle of, like, this pit of losing money probably the last thing on their mind is a remake but anime fans i can only assume do not give up that easy no and definitely not they were getting emails for uh what a workshop at one point said that for each lord of the rings email they'd get like hey the movie was so cool they'd get 25 emails about when's the nge movie coming out what's it gonna be like who's the director who are you getting to act i heard daniel radcliffe is gonna be in it is that true 
Come 2011, still nothing has happened. This is seven years. There's no way. Like this is way too much time, like spent like in like the the first stage like process. Like you're taking baby steps. I think by the time you start losing money, when your original proposed budget is 120 million dollars, and then two years later you're like oops we're losing money over ambition i mean over ambition is such a common theme in a lot of these movies it's like that that is just way and again for the time of you know 2004 like they could probably maybe if they propose that now it may be a little bit more plausible maybe but at the same time it's like for just on budget alone in 2004 it's just way out there you know yeah i i feel like it was before it was so it was too early too because we mentioned earlier twitter it'd be so easy to like get more of a demand for it i feel you know you can pick whatever corner of the internet you want to appeal to and spread word that way yeah get a hashtag going because <laughs> that was another concern was will there be an actual audience or just you know uh, it, it boils down to how much is an anime fan worth yeah <laughs> will one anime fan yeah, well, one, to see one person movie, coming to see it yeah will that or will it be 120 million dollars worth of anime fans <laughs> like would we make that budget back yeah so adv ends up in a lawsuit with ganex who was their vital part partner all along because ganex created evangelion they own the rights nasty lawsuit long story but basically there was um they were butting heads on who actually had the true rights and who would have had the rights as far as like an actual movie would go it's just so sad to originally be like everybody's stoked then come seven years later it's like i'll see you in court yeah forget the movie whereas all these anime fans are just left clamoring yeah so as of september of 2013 and the article that i read was updated in march of 2017 the case is still pending so now it's at a complete halt due to a nasty lawsuit so it's probably it it probably won't see the light of day which is unfortunate no and unless like another studio like you know picks it up or is negotiate like negotiates enough to where like it works but like i feel like it seems like it's it's just it's just stuck because then they would have to go through the entire process again (sighs) and and i don't know if it would i don't like i don't know if like even then like that should be just a telltale sign to be like ah maybe it's like i feel like at that point they'd be doing it out of pity for Mm -hmm. all those anime fans (laughs) that were waiting for like eight years (laughs) just throw them some bones but even then before it seems like even before the lawsuit like they were taking such small steps to like the actual forward process that it just it just wouldn't have worked out you know which, yeah. is, which is really sad ambition and excitement alone unfortunately is not enough to like get such a massive movie off the ground yeah i wish it was <laughs> so i have uh i have one more quick one that i want to talk about before we talk about our big one and it's uh <laughs> um my favorite book of all time mm-hmm. is The Road by Ooh. Cormac McCarthy. Um, and he's a very controversial author. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner um, for The Road. It's very difficult to explain his writing style in, in a very short, like a, a very small, like a quick sentence because he's very, he's very detailed, but at the same time can be very simple and is extremely graphic and emotionally depressing but is captivating at the same time. Um, he has a book called Blood Meridian, 
which is about um uh, uh I believe it's it takes place in eighteen. 85 it's it's in the 1880s a teenager runs into um a group of like a gang uh of um scalpers who get who are um known for their um of of, of killing and scalping native americans along the mexican uh, mexican and texan border and he gets involved with them and their leader is this like six foot eight tall humongous guy who has not a single hair on his body um and it's one of the most good graphic novels of the uh of recent memory and it's it's been under extreme controversy for years and um controversies and wanting to like get it pulled from shelves well yeah like that and just like it's so it's so graphic people shouldn't be reading this this is disgusting and this is just it's awful but like many you know People who read it say it's it's brilliant and it's like it's his best book. Um, but you know, so like the controversy in and of itself and the popularity of the book have made it want it to be turned into the movie. But it's also another subgroup of um, of works that I really like, other than movies that were never released or like lost, are books that are considered unfilmable. And Blood Meridian, along with many other Cormac McCarthy books mm-hmm. and Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace novels is considered that based on the graphic nature of it and just complete like bonkers story of it it just many people have just said yeah it's not it's not going to work it will never get filmed um back in the mid 90s Tommy Lee Jones who later um, was going who later went on to do No Country for Old Men, also written by Cormac McCarthy. He tried his hand at making it, but the studio that he was making for said it was just the you gotta bring it back a little bit. You know, it's it's way too graphic. Yeah, because if that got slapped with the next rating, yeah, exactly. That wouldn't have that would have killed it. And then later on, Ridley Scott tried to do it, and it, like there was no way, there was clearly no way to make this movie without the graphic nature of it, because that's the that's a pinnacle part of the story. And then. Just recently, James Franco, I think I think he made, he made a movie called Child of God, which was a, another adaptation of Cormac McCarthy. But he did a screen test for Blood Meridian. He was going to direct that too, and he was trying to get the rights. And he wanted to have at one point, like Vincent D'Onofrio was on hand to do the to be the the hairless guy, and then uh, Russell Crowe was was going to be in it. But then like. Um, after financing and uh he was he was like in the middle of financing but then it found out that he didn't fully have the rights to the book that people just kind of pulled out of it because that could be you know huge legal battle yeah and um at this point it was this was just a few years ago that i remember seeing that james franco was going to that he was going to direct it but now you know that's that's just not going to happen so we won't see franco's version of it but i think that there may still be chance to see some version of it i don't know i don't know who who would be attached to it but right now it's still stuck and i would love to see it and i i still want to read the book um but that one is is one that uh i i would love to see just because of like starting and stopping starting and stopping and yeah starting and stopping think it's time to talk about our <laughs> no, the whole reason we're here to talk because there's there's we like we have big interest in the movies that we just talked about but neither um in our opinion there's no better 
lost gem in cinema <laughs> than Jerry Lewis's 1970 film, The Day the Clown Cried. So this this movie, to me, is... <laughs> I don't, I, it's hard for me to put into words the way I feel about it because it's just so damn interesting. <laughs> like, I, I first heard of it... I think I just came, I saw a video or like talking about like movies that were never made and that just came up and I was like, oh my gosh, that just seems so far out of left field, yeah, right? I, I was reading a, a similar article, like lost films or, or movies that were made that you won't get to see uh-huh. and something teased like that. The Day the Clown Cried just stuck out the most yeah. as something so, I mean, talk about unfilmable. Yeah. I, I wonder how this got filmed as opposed to like... <laughs> Yeah, so this is a this was a move. So it's it's it was written by two journalists. It was uh, Charles Denton and Joan O'Brien. Originally wrote a screenplay that yeah. was very popular in making the rounds in Hollywood. It was about uh, this clown that was put into Auschwitz for mocking Hitler, and there the Jew or the the, um, the Nazis are having trouble um, taking kids to go into the gas chambers, and so they have the clown do that for them like that's their bidding like you do this for us mm-hmm. and so when he finally has to do it and he's freaking out um he he ends up walking into the to the chambers with the kids so it's 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 horrible but yes. <laughs> not not bad in this i i think that if it's a dramatic script i think it could work in a way yeah i think if it's much more dramatic it could have like and it was very popular. It was making the rounds, and then eventually it landed on the desk of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> and Jerry Lewis, it was um, a very big, prominent slapstick comedian. Yeah, very, very popular. Um, but this is definitely not the movie for him. It's completely. But he found something profound in it. You know, he of um, I believe of Jewish heritage himself. Yes, I think that's correct. Um, just found something in the drama that was just deep, like just that just hit him he's like this is the movie that i have to make oh yeah i mean he spoke about it um there's this article from spy magazine published in 1992 and it's got a little blurb from jerry lewis um on directing the last scene and that's the scene where he goes into the gas chamber with the children and he says quote i was terrified of directing the last scene but suddenly the children were all around me and i thought this is what my whole life has been leading to so for like for such passion i don't know for such like your whole life because this was his 41st film Uh that he worked on i mean that's a long career of movies and that's a lot of movies to have been in but it's also like completely different or at least like it seems like it would be like something like this would be like as it is like as the script like came to him it's like okay yeah this is not this is not something you would see jerry lewis directing yeah i think it's important to note he changed the script yeah he He, took it and he added a bunch of comedic elements to it yeah he made it much more funny and added his own brand of slapstick humor to it and in the original script the main clown or the only clown whose name is helmet yeah helmet helmet dork Mm -hmm. helmet dork (laughs) um he's like a jerk in the original script yeah totally he's supposed to be like extremely arrogant and and not very sympathetic yeah not at all and you don't have any warm feelings toward this character so i think jerry lewis he made it more of a sad clown which 
I was reading some of the scripts today, actually, and it's very, it's very clear where some of the writing can differ from Charles Den and Joan O'Brien mm-hmm. to Jerry Lewis. And some of the comedic stuff. Um, and I only read the beginning part. It's before he gets into the concentration camp. But even some of the way it's written, it's like, it's like outrageous comedy. You know, it's it's Jerry Lewis comedy. It's just like, oh, it's just like, it's the slapstick. It's just like the crazy, like, oh, you know, it's the, but it's like, it doesn't belong in a World War II it, movie. It's so not the right time or place. And, and I get that Jerry Lewis identified with it, but... <sighs> That doesn't mean everybody will. <laughs> no, and it's like there was a another big thing I learned a lot about it is from in in his book Silver Screen Fiend. Patton Oswalt talks about how he got the the script is on the internet. Like you can go like just read it like the the comedic version of it. Like you can just go and like and see what it. But it's much different to to see the film. Yeah. You know? So there's like there's there's jokes and they're like you know when he's in the barracks it's so cold that his like his socks stand up by themselves or he like pisses ice and it's like what jesus oh my Christ. god so and this is like this is in the early 70s this is when he is completely addicted to percocets <laughs> yeah. and he is just like so arrogant like pat oswald said like his quote at this point was like for me not to perform would be like salk withholding the cure so it's like he had to make this movie he was the only person to make this movie so Patton Oswalt gets his hands on the screenplay and he begins doing like this is when he was getting more I think this was in 90 the late 90s or something like that so he's like you know getting like more names and he's becoming more prominent in the comedy scene in LA and he starts doing live readings of it at um at the Largo Comedy Club and um like he's getting like you know comedians to get up and like do read and uh and then he goes to the Santa Monica Powerhouse Theater to do like a really big, like a full house sold out reading of it with um, people like Bob Odenkirk Ooh. and Jack Black. And uh, I think Margaret Cho was going to be on it, too. Um, but then he says like his downfall was that he made, um, t- um, I think it was TV Guide or L.A. Weekly or something like that called him and they found out about it and he was like would you oh would you like to do a an interview on this like would you like to promote it and you know Pat Oswalt he's like me being stupid I said yeah sure let's do it and you know he's just he doesn't have the rights to this he's yeah. just so he he gets the word out and ticket sales just go up and they're like do it's sold out and then just I think just an hour before the show he gets served with a cease and desist order or like that day when he arrived at the theater he got a cease and desist order from not jerry lewis but it was this other guy who had the rights to the original screenplay like the original yeah when he was gonna make that like that was like gonna be his big thing the dramatic version of it, you know and and so they were gonna go on and they were still gonna do it but then the guy comes and says to him like and he's just like yelling at him out back in the theater just like you and your fucking c-list actors doing this read and is and he's just like really that's what you're mad about it's like how dare you you're you're fucking comedians like you i have the right to, like you can't be doing shut it down or i'll like deface your name forever just screaming at him and like basically like Pat oswald's defenseless defenseless he's just like oh okay, yeah I'm, I'm really sorry man i mm-hmm. won't do it and he's like and he's like i will never do another reading in la and Pat oswald says he's like yes i've been true to my word and every reading i've done has been in new york and 
and he's like, I've done, <laughs> I've done Steve, I've had Stephen Colbert, and he's like, at least like, I hope if he's mad at me, at least he's happy that I used A-list people, you know? And yeah. One of the things he said to him was like, I've got Chevy Chase interested in doing this, and that I was like, well, now it's like I feel like I have to stop because I want that to happen. And then Bob Odenkirk <laughs> goes on stage to begin the show, and they just ended up doing a bunch of improv stuff, which the, the crowd loved it because all those people are great at improv. Bob Odenkirk goes on stage and goes, Chevy Chase was born to play a clown that walks kids into an oven (laughs) um so and so he um at one point also he got called into um i it was it it was the year that like when when jack benny had died they had called jerry lewis called in a bunch of like known comedians around the around the area to Um, to come into his office and they were all going to do because Jerry Lewis was big on telethons during this time and yeah. he they called them and, and they when they did the telethon they were going to have everyone step forward and say a, a Henny Yunman joke in honor of him and so they're doing it and like there's a bunch of comedians and Pat Oswald says um, that it was it was dying a horrible death and it's very clear that it's not going to happen but it's on Jerry Lewis's desk is this briefcase and one of the legends is that he has this big steel bulletproof briefcase that he keeps the reels in and during this entire thing, all he's thinking is, I should just grab that fucking briefcase and run, you know? I should just run, you oh, know? Oh, man. I read that it was a Louis Vuitton suitcase uh-huh, that yeah. he kept the one sole VHS tape in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't blame it, but, like, I think, you know, like, something like this is just, it's, in, like, so insane. But, like, you know, he was really passionate about it and he thought it could work. And I think, like, when he ran into do you know how he ran he ran into like legal troubles with it and i'm not familiar with that i know he i think like the reason it got shelved or like because it was totally shot mm-hmm. like i think i don't know how he got all the funding i think it was well he started using his own money i know he pers- personally yeah. financed some of it but i wasn't sure of how much but he i know that at one point he um he wasn't he didn't have the entire rights to it or like all the rights because i know i think joan o'brien like showed up on set one day and was like hey uh, i don't think you have all the rights to this and then also i think he showed the studio like a rough cut and they were like there's no way in hell we are showing this to people this is horrible um and so it just he like keeps all the reels in the vault and i think you have um on in spy magazine uh somehow i think his like assistant was like moving his stuff and took the reels and showed them to harry shearer who was an actor on the simpsons and yes. uh, still is so what do you what do you ha- i think you have the article pulled up yeah i do um it was basically a, a round table discussion of just an inside look uh-huh because <laughs> I, I first just want to talk about just the scale of like realizing how poorly of you did when you were like this is what i was meant to do this is the movie i was meant to do and then realizing oh my god i made a huge mistake yeah, during the last years of his life he was like he did like an interview in like 2015 and someone asked him and he's like it's like um you know i was embarrassed and he's like i can recognize now that like I, it was really bad and i it could have been great but like i i messed up and i think it's admirable that he just accepted oh, like yeah it was- yeah because he could have either just completely refused to talk about it or i'm sure he did at various times like especially like after he was just like yeah i'm not i don't want to i don't want this to my name i i wonder though like what was he thinking (laughs) because i wonder if he thought it would be like the academy 
I know, acknowledge I, it. I know that I I definitely think that that's part of it because I know part of it was like he wanted to be considered a serious actor. Yeah, because the Academy loves biopics. Yeah, exactly. And this was such a different one because I mean, and then you know in the 90s life is beautiful came out and then he was probably just like kicking himself in the head like god (laughs) damn it because when i first read the synopsis to the day the clown cried first of all the synopsis makes it sound like spy article says a john waters movie and that's such a great comparison to make because it just sounds so tasteless yeah and out of all the movies that you can make about the holocaust you know you could you could talk to a survivor get a true story of what it was like or was there any way you found any slight enjoyment of humor not not so much enjoyment but any sort of humor because dark humor is a thing yeah that's what that i guess that's a better term for it it's like yeah you know something to like i guess i mean it's tough because i mean obviously you and i have no experiences of like something like this but like maybe something is able to push through but like even something in this of just like the darkest depths of humanity yeah it's just like you know comedy's a way to cope and i don't think the holocaust is anything to laugh at i wouldn't be surprised if there's nowhere where you can find humor but he could have tried rather than do this because i mean in preparation he visited dachau and auschwitz and he lost 35 pounds on a grapefruit diet Uh and that's all well and good but I think there should have been a lot more hesitation involved in just thinking, like, what am I about to make? Especially yeah. just the fact that it involves children, too. Yeah, well, and I th- and it's like, I mean, you go back and, like, you, I mean, a, as, as a writer, like, I can go back and look at some of my stuff and just be like, oh, okay, I thought that was that sounded good at the time. But same like, here. It, it doesn't, like, it, like it, when I'm 17, I'm writing something. I could be like, "Yeah, that sounds really good." And mm-hmm. then I go back now. It's like, "Oh, okay, that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't really work." But like, this is something that's like on such a much bigger scale. Like, because it involves something so real. Like, you can you can make something that's personal and something that really only applies to you and your experiences, and go back and be like, "Oh, that was a mistake," but somebody still might be able to find some sort of relation or enjoyment out of something that's specific to you but something like the holocaust which was not specific to jerry lewis i mean he's jewish but maybe in some of maybe some i don't know if any of his like well i don't think any of his ancestors did as far as i don't know know. about that but it will probably not because i mean he was born in 47 so i don't know if he has any relatives but granted i i I don't know but i mean at the same time yeah it's there's a there's a line where it's like you should know where like it's because i mean like i said this could have been a really great movie if they stuck to the dramatic elements of it that could have been super original and really like kind of out there but at the same time when you add the slapstick to it yeah and like it's just like a john waters thing and i think like pat oswald he also said something like you know it's 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 one thing if someone's doing something and they know it's in bad taste like that's what john waters thrives off of he understands that he's but he understands it's bad taste but when they're doing it when someone's doing something and they're like you're welcome you know that makes it (laughs) 10 times worse you know yeah that's that's so painful too because the way that jerry lewis it seems that the way he spoke of it was like it's so important and i i'm not sure how how soon after uh that it was made did he go into like lock this down i don't know i know that he 
1970, I think is when he finished it. And he was going to go to the Cannes Film Festival. And I think he was like pretty close to going like in May. And then um, it seemed like it, it just like I think it just fell apart before then. And then it was just like, OK, yeah, we're not going to it's not going to get released. But then I don't know how soon after that he started to have like guilt about it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know either. And I'm interested to know because I think it could be a, you, like you said earlier, it's a positive thing to have that self-awareness to be like, I made something completely lacking in taste. Yeah. And he could have probably done some sort of skeezy, like, I'll own it. And yeah, that was me. Because everybody that I know that knows about this movie wants to see it so badly. So I feel like there was room to profit off it still. But instead, he was like, lock this up. No, yeah. And I I don't blame him for like, I mean, again, I I have a, a more respect. I mean, he's he's passed on now maybe rest in peace but like i i have much more respect for him in the sense that he understands now that it's like it was bad Mm -hmm. like it was that i messed up like and i'm not and i'm better because of it you know like i'm i'm i fucked up i learned and i moved on Mm -hmm. you know and that's like not a lot of people say that nowadays you know oh yeah and i i I respect him for doing that at least to go back to what we mentioned earlier about social media and twitter and how even just like fan projects can get so much attention i i think of what if this was trying to be made today or was made two years ago and then word came of it today like nowadays jerry lewis would probably be like a wanted man oh yeah People no would it so would upset. it would shut like studios down this movie <laughs> like with the slapstick humor it would no it would not be no it, it would not no <laughs> i, I what, just... what is your so you told me this this magazine article yeah. um, has a round table discussion because i know that harry Shearer has said it's like he had he remembers it being like a much more overall experience of just mm-hmm. tastelessness and he said it's like <laughs> it's like going down to tijuana and seeing a black velvet oh, yeah. painting of auschwitz <laughs> and it says like never forget and you're like oh my god <laughs> like what the what's wrong with you <laughs> where the intentions lie in the right place though um it sounds like we read the same article i read the harry Shearer interview yeah i didn't read the the interviews with people who've worked on it that sounds interesting maybe he just uh said a lot of the same lines because um i i read that exact same one yeah but uh harry Shearer actually you mentioned that jerry did the telethons Uh uh-huh um he was asked can you compare the day of the clown cry with anything else that lewis has done and harry Shearer said that the only thing in jerry's a curve i don't know how to say that word that really is like it is a wonderful thing that he did early on in the telethon it was dramatic tape of an la actor who hosted the popeye show and jerry shot it the guy plays muscular dystrophy it's a stage reading in a scary voice i am muscular dystrophy and i hate people especially children. I love to make their limbs shrivel up. They showed this for several years before cooler heads prevailed. In sense of misplaced dramaturgy, it was the closest I ever came to seeing anything that would be a real precursor to the clown movie. So, <laughs> already a little exploration That's bad taste. <laughs> that is horrible. Oh my god. Jesus I, Christ. See, like someone like like it's almost like the makers of south park when they have stuff that comes out 
and it's just like oh my god mm-hmm. they're actually saying something that it, i don't yeah. know like what i can't the, i can't, I can't find or, like what where does that idea come from that's just oh my god I, yeah i can't wrap my head around <laughs> or especially not this movie because uh i mean everybody is a different gauge for what they think is not cool to joke about uh-huh. what one person thinks is like fine to laugh out to laugh at another person would like draw a hard line yeah and i just think like where were those lines during this entire movie i don't know <laughs> like, didn't know i'm sure there, there had to have been like some people on set that were just like oh man you don't know like this is not okay <laughs> what else is that article what else are there like do people talk about their experience i i'm skimming it or by people who worked on it it was harriet anderson uh-huh. i believe she acted in it okay I, I might be wrong um but she had a lot to say and she seems like pained almost talking about it oh well there's miss anderson do you remember any of your scenes and harriet anderson said there was a scene where we were in a kitchen or something. I'm sorry, it's just a little confusing because I felt there it was something wrong with it in a way. And then uh, another person said that it's very Pied Piper-ish. There are like 10 or 15 children. They're like seven or eight years old. Helmet rounds them up. They're in a yard. He takes them off to showers slash ovens. And the kids ask, where are we going, Helmet? Where are we going? He's telling jokes and stories to the kids and singing songs. He does a lot of Jerry shtick. You're supposed to laugh at his routines, yet be appalled by the horror. The children are cheerful because he's Helmet the Great. Meanwhile, of course, he's terribly sad because he has a sad thing to do. But he's smiling behind his tears because he's trying to embrace the children. They're tugging at his clothes. Now he's standing in front of the oven. The children just march in the door. It hasn't been turned on yet. You can still hear them laughing inside. And then he sort of stands there and looks in and stands there on the outside and starts to cry. One tear rolls down the clown makeup. They make an art direction point of it. And then he goes in himself. So that line too about an art direction point of it, I I can just picture like a single tear Uh messing up a face full of clown makeup, like Uh drawing a line in it, revealing naked flesh. Like... it's just so not the time or place to be artsy. Uh-uh. No, and that, oh, man. Or, or to try and make it about you, and by you, I mean Jerry Lewis. Yeah, that would. that's a definite, like, nod to the to the audience that's just like, yeah, I'm pretty great, aren't I? Like, that's like, oh. <laughs> I bet you've never seen me cry in a movie before. Because yeah. that's another thing, too. I think if you want to make the transition to being a dramatic actor... This is the worst possible way yeah, to definitely. do it. But like, I mean, yeah, it's just like it's complete tasteless. And I mean, the only hope of being able to see is like um, Jerry Lewis sold the rights to the film in 2015 to the Library of Congress. And I think they have all the reels. Yeah, they and, have um, it like under lock. Yeah. And um, the only I think they said the, it would only be able to be released to the public in 2024. So in less than t- 10 years what do you think that means exactly release to the public will there be screenings i'd imagine they would at least or they Amazon? would at least do screenings yeah i think if anything they're gonna do that i, at, I at wonder I, I hope what the reception will be like I, I wonder if there'll be i don't know if generation is the right word but people that are gonna find it problematic and won't look at it from the point of view of like this is a lost film that we never got to see but something like this is tasteless and should never be in theaters i think that people 
I don't know. I think there's going to be a bit of both, definitely. Some pushback. But I, th- yeah, there's definitely still, because the film is still the film, and I think it's going to, there's definitely going to be people who say it should never be seen, and there was a reason why, and all of this. Um, but I think that it's a very definitive part of film history as well. I agree. And maybe I'm just saying it's because I also want to see it, and I want to see, <laughs> like, why it's considered, like, some, those who've seen it, like, say it's, like, you know, it's one. It's just a disaster, and others are like. I think only twelve people have seen it, so it's the least seen film in history because it is. It is technically like filmed, all filmed together. But yeah. like, um, so he, um, so like, and but others say it's like it could be like the it's like the greatest movie ever made. And I don't think it's gonna be that good. <laughs> I don't think it's gonna be that good at all. But I want to see it for the overall experience. And like, but there's definitely gonna be that pushback. Like definitely. I, I also wonder how it's gonna relate to like a whole irony movement. I feel like that's a thing people that like movies ironically or it's so bad like I wonder if it would get into the same territory as like Birdemic or The Room or if it's just overall going to be not necessarily rejected but just looked at as like well those I think those are different because those movies are like you know they're so bad they're good yeah in a way but this movie this movie is so I mean this I think the being tasteless is different than being kind of the guilty pleasure mm-hmm. you know where it's like fun bad this movie is it seems like as far as i know it yeah. seems like something that would be bad and it's like cringeworthy bad yeah and, and it's not the fun tasteless like john waters no and it's just but it's something that people want to see i think it's one of the most famous you know law it's like one of if not the most famous you know lost film in cinema and I, I hope that they do some screenings of it. And, I hope so too. And I'll I'll be there. I definitely will be there. <laughs> Same. That's gonna do it for this episode of Frankly I Love Movies. Thanks Excellent. for being here. Thank Rihanna. you for having me. Um so you guys can check us out on uh Facebook, Twitter, and uh our website, orionvalleyproductions.com, as well as obviously iTunes. Tune in in two weeks where I have a new review of a special movie with a special guest. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Uh-huh.